Hello, I'm Katie Brain and you're listening to Goodness Gracious Grief. Some people will be hit by grief following the sudden loss of a loved one, whether it be a tragic accident or a short-term illness. But in some cases, people can get diagnosed with terminal illnesses and have time to face the idea of dying. I don't think we can ever say which would be the best way to die, but those who do receive bad news, I suppose it gives them time to grieve their own death. For some people, this will be organising their assets, tying up loose ends, and making sure everything is in place for their families. They may even decide to plan their own funeral. But for others, this might be a struggle. You could be coming to terms with the fact that you'll be leaving behind loved ones, feeling guilty that you're inflicting pain on those close to you. But obviously that's not the case. And for a lot of us, we've all been hit by the big C word at some point in our lives. Cancer. You may have lost someone to cancer already. You may be living with cancer yourself. Or you might be watching someone you love as they are faced with a terminal illness. I don't remember my dad telling me he had cancer. This is probably because he just slipped it into a normal conversation and didn't want to fuss about it. I don't think he thought he was going to die. Even in the days leading up to his death, he spoke about going back to work and taking a trip to the Isle of Wight. So the thought of the end wasn't something we spoke about. This isn't the only time I've been faced with cancer. My nan had a battle of breast cancer. My granddad died from bowel cancer. And shortly after my dad died, I had the funerals of both my godfather and my uncle to attend, who both died from cancer too. For those people who know they are dying... Do they grieve their own death? Do they grieve the life they thought they would have? And do their families grieve alongside them while they're still here? Is this comforting or is it twice as painful for those involved? Have you ever asked someone who is faced with a poor prognosis how they are feeling how they cope, and what are their fears. Now is a good time for me to introduce you to my guest. I'm Diane and I'm 54. Um, I work full-time as a HR director and I've got two grown-up children, two grown-up stepchildren and two grandchildren. Um, And a husband, obviously. (laughs) Don't forget the husband. (laughs) Definitely don't forget him. <laughs> um, so that's my my immediate support network. I have a big wider family as well. Um, and those are the people, I suppose, alongside me that are most impacted by what's going on um, since diagnosis. In 2018, Diane was diagnosed with ocular melanoma. It was quite a quick and shocking diagnosis and she had to have her eye removed very quickly. 
at the time, Diane did not see this as being life-threatening, but following the biopsy, she was told she had a very poor prognosis, yet she remains positive. It wasn't going to get me. <laughs> I was going to be I was going to be one of the lucky ones. Um, and if it did, it would probably be three or five years away. So I didn't need to worry about it now. Um, unfortunately, in May of this year, it did get me. Um, so that's really where the sort of being hit by a double-decker bus um, comes through. Before we find out the current prognosis for Diane, let's just rewind a bit and see... What led her to go for that initial eye test? I was at work and I had this feeling of an eyelash or something similar in my eye. And I asked a colleague to have a look and she couldn't see anything. And I thought, okay, you know, it happens sometimes. You get something in your eye. And the next day it seemed to have gone. So that was fine. And then I was sitting at my desk and I nearly jumped out of my skin because I had this sense of somebody standing next to me. But I sit buffeted it up to a wall and it was obviously a shadow that came across my eye and um, that made me jump. So I then thought something isn't quite right. I ought to go to the opticians. And subconsciously, I think I was thinking at my age, possibly maybe I've got to start a cataract or something like that. So I made my appointment at Specsavers, um, not really expecting any major revelations. And um, they covered my good eye and I suddenly had this shock that my vision in my left eye was quite limited. And I hadn't realised that because my right eye had been compensating. Mm. Um, there was a lot of faffing around and a lot of toing and froing and different people coming in and taking pictures. At which stage they told me that I needed to go immediately up to the local hospital eye clinic. Um, and I went there and they actually told me that there was something in my eye. Somebody let the word melanoma slip out, which they shouldn't have done at that stage. Um, and then they tried to retract. And we were asked to go back on the Monday and see the consultant, um, at which case we got an immediate referral to um, an ocular oncologist at Moorfields. I saw her later that day and she was able to tell me there and then I had a huge ocular melanoma in my eye that was too large to treat and that the only option would be in order to save my life would be to remove the eye. You, you've heard the word cancer thrown at you and then on top of that they're telling you, you you've got to remove your eyes and I mean a lot of us should take our eyes for granted but if you were faced with those two things at the same time that how do you even cope with that? That was it was difficult, but it was quite simple in one sense. The ocular oncologist that I saw was very, very compassionate in the way she delivered the news. And she explained all of the different treatments that they treat ocular melanoma with and explained why each of those wasn't suitable in my situation. Um, and then built up to the fact that for me, you know, in her opinion, the best option was to remove the eye and, and we did have a little joke because I said well how quickly will you do this and she sort of said I'm not going to take you down to surgery now <laughs> um, so we had we had a week really I had a week to get used to the fact that I was going to lose the eye um, which was quite shocking but I'm quite resilient generally and so I thought okay this is what we need to do then we need to face it and, and do it. 
So what was life like once you had your eye removed? Could you just go about daily life as, as normal or, or did it really affect you? It took a little bit of adjustment. I mean, I had a few days when I was in the home on my own, when I would sit on the floor and wail and sob and cry and why me? Um, and then it was the practical things. So pouring a glass of water, missing the glass with your wine, <laughs> um, filling a vase with water under the tap because you suddenly find the water's flowing down the back. Um, so it was really that depth perception. Um, fell down some steps in the underground because I didn't see they'd come to an end and just stepped out and thought I was at the bottom of a flight of steps and there was still another five to go. Um, so it was that type of thing. But gradually I've adjusted to that. Um, initially I said I would never drive again, but I do. It, you just adjust, but it does take a little bit of time to get your head around the fact that you can... One thing I learned is that we don't see with our eyes, we see with our brain, and our eyes are just lenses. So your brain adjusts to getting all of its image through one camera lens instead of two camera lenses. And that just takes a period of time to adjust. So this has all happened very fast. You've got the diagnosis a week later that they're removing your eye. What has happened since? Did you think yes, I've got this under control. So next, they did an MRI scan just to check that it hadn't already spread because it is a blood-borne cancer, and that came back clear. I was referred to an ocular medical oncologist, sorry, um, for ongoing surveillance, so I had a meeting with him, and he said, we'll do regular MRIs. Um, they did an MRI and a PET scan initially, and he said, we'll do MRIs every six months, and if nothing's come up in three years, we'll repeat the PET scan just to be sure. Um, otherwise, we'll only do a PET scan if we have a reason to do so. So we had the first surveillance after six months and everything was clear. So that was great. And this is how life was going to be. And then we had the second follow up in May. And the atmosphere was very different when I went into his office because normally he said he would go, well, everything's fine. <laughs> and he didn't. So there was this initial this isn't quite the same conversation that we've had previously when I've been here. And he told us that, you know, some three, uh, three or possibly four dots have shown up on the liver that were um, consistent with what they would expect to see in metastatic melanoma. Um, so he wanted to arrange for the liver to be biopsied, but also to do a PET scan um, to check whether it had spread anywhere else in the body. Um, when we had the results of the PET scan, it, he told me that there were multiple lesions in both lungs. Um, I, I always try to look for the positive, and my positive was there's nothing in the brain <laughs> at the moment, and that was the one that really was worrying me. Um, so we then had to talk about um, where we go with treatment. And I think that was one of the big things for me, because you're in this point of switching between disbelief and denial this can't be happening I don't believe this is happening this is all a bad dream and at the same time you're having to make quite significant decisions about where you're going to go with treatment at one point they're telling you something that you don't want to believe and you're finding it hard to believe and the next thing they're saying well these are the options for me in one sense there, there weren't a lot of options and that actually made it easier because I didn't have to make too many decisions. 
um, we didn't go down the route of liver directed therapies because they wouldn't address the lungs. So we went for systemic therapy, which is a targeting the whole body. Um, so we started on that um, three weeks ago. And um, fortunately, at the moment, I don't have too many side effects. <laughs> is there a cure here or have you been told that this is terminal? No, there's no cure. Um, and that's one of the hard things because you're signing off um, your consent for treatment and you're signing next to where they tick the box that this is palliative care um, with the aim of making your life, extending life, because they may be able to um, slow down the progression or stabilise the progression, even though they can't reverse it. Um, but also they want to make your quality of life better. So what is the diagnosis? Have they kind of given you a time frame at all? So I asked my consultant if I refused treatment, because that was one thing that went through my mind, how long I had, and he said six to 12 months. Um, I don't feel sick enough for someone to tell me that I could be dead in six months, and that is really difficult to get my head around. Um, with the treatment, it all depends on how well I respond to it. Um, my consultant has a success story and an elderly gentleman who is still going nearly three years after treatment and I was very privileged to meet him at the weekend so I now know who he is um, and he's a lovely guy and it was really nice to hear his story. Has this in a way kind of cut your life short? Has it changed your perspective on life at all? Absolutely because you go through a process where you have to think about what was important to you, um, where you thought you were going. And most of us don't think about when we're going to die. And since the diagnosis, I think I dipped into my subconscious and thought, I think I was going through life thinking, I'll be here till my sort of mid to late 80s. My mum's still going in her 80s. I'll see the grandchildren grow up. Hopefully I'll see them get married. Although I haven't consciously had those thoughts, that was really in my subconscious what how I was living my life but you know you have your family around you you'll be there for them and suddenly you have to accept the realism that you probably won't see your grandchildren grow up so you start to reset those boundaries to well hopefully I'll live long enough that they remember me or I'll live long enough to see them start school and, and you actually put in um, things that are quite more achievable so you think, OK, I'd like to live this long, I'd like to live that long, knowing that you don't really have any control over it, but it makes it more manageable in a way to think, yeah, this is my aim, I want to see this or I want to do that. Um, and you start forgetting about the longer term, you start forgetting about what you might have done when you retired or because those things aren't really there for you any longer. Um, your job... My job is difficult because I'm quite ambitious and I've loved my job and I love where I am and I'm not ready. Everyone says I should just retire now, but I'm not ready. To me, that's giving up and I'm not ready to give up. So I've just stepped back. I work a lot less hours. Um, very good employer that allows me to do that. Um, but I'm not ready yet to say I'm calling it a day. <laughs> Would you say that that you are grieving for kind of something that's not kind of going to be the way that you thought it was? Absolutely. So you 
you don't realise you're grieving. Um, I think you you watch your family around you, and if somebody loses somebody very quickly in a tragic accident, um, they are hit by this wall of grief immediately, and they haven't had time to say goodbye, and they haven't done this and that. I think when I watch my family, I see signs of them grieving already because they're grieving alongside you. And that's quite difficult to watch, but they know what the prognosis is as well. And everyone tries to stay strong for you, but little things that your sisters say or your children say or actions, you realise that they're all going through this grief process with you. And then you start to feel guilty because you've put this on them even though it's outside of your control, you don't want to hurt your family. Those are the people that you normally protect. And suddenly you feel that through no fault of your own, you're actually hurting them and you're watching them hurt. And that, um, that can be quite hard. And, and you then get quite hard on yourself and think, why have I done this to everybody? The people that will be left behind, how can you help them prepare? And I mean, is that even even possible or can you just try and make it easier for them, I guess? I don't think you can necessarily help them prepare because there isn't a script for grief. So they will all grieve in different ways. They will if there was if grief was a book, they'll all be on different pages at different times. It will be rare that they'll all be on the same page on the same day. Um, and what I hope is that they will understand that and accept with each other that they're all grieving at different times and not expect people. One of the things I found very early on in my um, diagnosis when I had some counselling and I was going through the anger stage and my counsellor explained to me that everybody around me wasn't on that same page as me and I had to realign my expectations because I assumed that everybody was where I was and they, I was ready to talk about planning my funeral but they weren't and I couldn't force that on them um, so I think that's something that I hope they will do moving forward is to support each other but also accept their differences in the way that they grieve what I think I can do there's the practicalities you can do to help things easier um, after you're gone and make sure your house is in order and you know your finances are in order and everything is easy but also the other thing is that you have that time to tell the people around you that you love them, to hold them, to hug them, to cry together, to not go with things unsaid, um, which I hope will, in the long term, when they look back, I hope that will help that we're able to have that time. What support have you received through all of this? Other than the support of my family, who have all been amazing and all running around and doing things. I'm quite a pragmatic person, so I go out and look for the support. So I found a support group called Ocumel, um, who have been very supportive. Um, it's really nice to be able to speak to other people who are going through the same cancer as you, the same treatments, and we're at different stages. Um, and they have a lot of information on treatments that are coming out and um, trials. And so there's, there's an awful lot of support there. I've also um, reached out to um, a place called Penny Bron in Bristol, who support people with all different types of cancer and support people caring for people with cancer. Um, and they do some residential courses. And I've been, 
I've been on one day course, one residential course, which if nothing else gives me 48 hours where I go away and somebody looks after me holistically. Um, it's about looking after the whole person. Um, and I've had some counselling through my GP. So that's really the, the main support that I've had. But nobody actually comes and says to you, here's your diagnosis and here's your support package. You really have to go and look for that support package. And I'm the type of person that will do that. I think there are perhaps others who may find that more difficult to do, that they need somebody to reach out to them rather than them go and search for it. And ocular melanoma is not that well known, I guess. Are you going to kind of continue to raise as much awareness around that as you can? Absolutely. So we've done a lot of fundraising. Um, my daughter put on a, a ball, which raised an amazing amount of money for Ocumel. And um, we've done lots of um, support through my company, have done things. And I have my son-in-law running a marathon at the end of the year. My sister doing the Thames Towpath Challenge, all to raise money. And as much as raising money, it raises awareness because only six or seven people in every million in the UK will be affected with ocular melanoma so it's a very very low number so I totally was not aware that you could get cancer in your eye I'd never heard of it at all um, and most people that I know had never heard of it um, I never really appreciated the importance of regular eye tests I did have my eye tests done but not perhaps as regularly as I should have done but also that this wouldn't always be picked up in a regular eye test that people need to ask to have their eyes dilated, particularly if they're having any concerns with their vision, because the eyes are the windows to so many, not just ocular melanoma, but so many illnesses can be picked up first by regular eye examination. So I would urge everybody, if you haven't had your eyes tested regularly, to go and get them done. It doesn't take long, it doesn't hurt, and it could save your life. That was a really tough interview for me. Not only because I know Diane personally, but because she is truly an inspiration for anyone who has ever received bad news. Diane has found the positive in every opportunity, even talking then about resetting boundaries because she may not live to reach the moments that she thought she would once experience. My favourite quote there, speaking to Diane, was, if grief was a book, we would all be on different pages. I couldn't describe that any better. And if you did miss it, then check out episode three of this podcast, where I looked at the stages of grief, and it talks about this in much more detail. Diane did mention there two charities which have helped her. Ocumel UK, a registered charity run by eye cancer patients and family members. Ocumel support those affected by ocular melanoma and aim to help patients and their families by providing accurate, up-to-date information and emotional support, whether this be via their website, helpline or online forums. You can find out more about Ocumel UK by visiting www.ocumeluk.org. She also mentioned Penny Bron in Bristol, who help people live well with the impact of cancer. 
through a combination of physical, psychological, nutritional and emotional support services. The centre provides the space and the time for reflection and a chance for people to focus on themselves. Visit www.pennybron.org.uk to find out more. I'm Katie Brain and you've been listening to Goodness Gracious Grief.